So the way to kind of avoid that movement is to just get all of your golfers uh, to strip down into their boxes. Um, <laughs> do you think that's achievable? Definitely, in the right setting. 2D vision is flat and doesn't represent what we see in our eyes from a stereoscopic perspective like the foresight launch monitors build around. How can we get to more of a biomechanical analysis and a correct analysis to help golfers using 2D video? You know, we'll talk later about Sportsbox AI, which is, I would say, is the best 2D, uh, 3D, 2D to 3D capture system right now until uh, we get ours going. I think as long as the system says, hey, these are our limitations, we're not measuring this because we can't do it accurately, then that's a good, useful system. I love that we're talking about future stuff and it's exciting, but what could I do tomorrow to improve straight away? What's your thoughts on that? Hello and welcome to the Golf Science Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Thompson, your golf science educator. Now in this podcast, we explore the latest research in golf science talking to sports science researchers from around the world in the areas of nutrition, psychology, biomechanics, strength and conditioning, as well as other sports science disciplines. Now we take a deep dive into their research, talking about what they did and how the findings are useful for playing professionals, coaching professionals and amateur golfers. Now, as a side note, if you're a PGA professional in America, you can now gain PGA credits for listening to this podcast. So head over to the Science Caddy website to understand how. Now, to get stuck into the podcast, I need to introduce my co-host, Lewis Downey, PGA Pro. How are you doing today, pal? You okay? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be back on again. I'm enjoying these every week. I'm learning so, so much and I'm so honoured to be a part of it all, mate. Oh, great stuff. Great to hear it. Well, obviously, the last episode, we um, spoke about strength conditioning, didn't we? Strength conditioning in senior players um, and spoke around kind of the ageing, the age, healthy ageing, I guess, of golfers we spoke about and effectively how strength and conditioning can help performance for those players. What was your thoughts on that one? I, I, I definitely believe in the fact that it can and, and it's getting the application of getting them to do it. Um, but something that come out of it was getting, you know, a sense of community, getting them maybe to do it in sort of groups, friendship groups. And I've definitely been thinking about some ideas since we've had that conversation. So, yeah, no, and it definitely reflects on on my client base and the people I see at the golf club. Um, you know, most most of these people could move better and could see gains in general flexibility for their day to day life, but also for hitting the ball 10 yards longer. Yeah, and I, yeah, totally. And I think there's a lot of take-home messages for pros to potentially think about and how they can promote uh, a stronger and healthier kind of golfer and what, what kind of things they can do. And uh, we, we we touched on some aspects last week that potentially even those empty conference rooms you get in golf clubs um, could they be utilised more effectively? Be that we've come some kind of um, mats down for and yoga kind of mats down sorry and some kind of elastic uh, therabands to do some exercises foam rollers um, and even if they could invest in some equipment or be it if you took the next step getting a PT in to work at the club to work with some clients I know we spoke before about whether or not some of those aspects are realistic but I guess what we can try and do is try to kind of offer potential options for PJ pros to think about and whether or not some of these things are useful and practical for them to implement 
I think with anything like this, you know, it requires someone to get behind it and force the change, uh, show the evidence, get people involved uh, and, and take it from there. And obviously, you know, word of mouth would spread that it does work and it is beneficial. Um, it's just changing people's habits of a lifetime. But I'm not saying it's not possible. I just it definitely needs a good grunt of uh, a group of people uh, that have the same intention behind it. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, today we're going to be shifting the focus here, obviously, and we're going to be talking about biomechanics, which is more my wheelhouse. Um, so we're specifically today, we're going to be talking about 2D and 3D analysis of the golf swing. Now, with you being a coach, um, I assume you've got quite a lot of experience uh, of using 2D analysis in your coaching. Yeah, so um, I suppose I'd love to have a 3D motion capture sort of system. Uh, haven't quite saved up enough pennies for that one yet, but I do, yes, use the 2D video format. Um, I do try my best to make sure that all the camera angles are the best I can get them to give myself the most realistic visual of like the down the line and the face on, but um, or, or from other directions as well. So yes, I do use it. It is I find it useful, but I can imagine Tony's going to highlight some uh, areas that could be improved with that today. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, hopefully, and that's kind of part of the process today, isn't it, really, is to kind of help uh, potentially pros, if they're going to be using 2D, what they could do better um, and how they could make that more accurate and reliable. And one of the reliability points that I remember you talking about before, actually, when we had, I think it was one of our first episodes, and you were speaking mm. about, yeah, it was actually, it was the first one, um, and we were talking about how you kind of train the players to use it almost outside of your lessons. Was that right? Totally. I mean, my ethos with all my players is that they need to be able to almost coach themselves when I'm not there. I can't hold their hand all the time. So they've got to have a skill set to be able to go away, make change and come back. Obviously, I'm there for guidance. But at the end of the day, when you're on the range and you're by yourself, you need to know what you're doing for that hour, two hours or whatever time you have allotted for your practice. You need to know the guidelines you need to know your journey and if you're kind of looking at a video that you can draw on with one of these apps a bit clueless then that's not going to help yeah and i remember you talking about actually how you positioned that camera and making sure they had consistency with how when they go away from you yeah. how they position that height positioning all those things which help with that reliability piece so that's great to hear and hopefully um, we'll talk to Tony in a little bit um, about kind of those aspects. And you said your thoughts around 3D as well. So obviously you'd like to. What are the kind of barriers that you currently have against using 3D? So I think, I know, that, I know there's a few apps coming out here and there that potentially analyze 3D. I don't know how accurate they are or if they're accurate enough. But I think the main barrier is the financial barrier. I mean, I'm happy to invest in it. Um, but I think it's, it is it is that jump. You know, you've got your launch monitors that are like TrackMan and Foresight Quad and 20,000. And, and some of the motion capture systems are also the same cost. So you've got, as a business point of view, you've got to be able to justify that cost and whether you're going to use it enough. And I'm sure I would. So I definitely have been considering it, but I think that is the barrier yeah. for me. Um whether there's any tips and tricks from Tony uh, and any, any middle ground that we could meet at, I'd definitely be excited to hear that. Yeah, love a good middle ground. Way to solve some problems. 
yeah. cool well great stuff so i think it's about time we actually bring tony onto the call uh what do you think about that sounds great <laughs> sounds good so let, let's welcome on tony uh looks out from mississippi state university hi tony welcome to the podcast daniel lewis really appreciate the time uh can't wait to jump into that senior strength conditioning podcast being uh i'm one of those guys and working on some speed training right now <laughs> I, i'm sure i can learn some more from that so I'm, I'm happy to share our research and i really appreciate your time and it's an honor for me to be here to talk with you guys it's our pleasure too yeah you're very very welcome now to fill the listeners in a little bit on your background tony so Tony's an assistant research professor at the National Strategic Planning and Analysis Research Center. He is the co-founder of Humo Golf and Golf Science Engineering and Performance Lab, which is a business focused on developing wearable technology to improve human movement um, with a piece of golf equipment actually coming out in the coming months. Um, so Tony is, has over 20 publications, mainly in the area of wearable sports technology. So Tony, does that just about sum up your background there? Anything else you want to add? Uh, that's the good education part of it. So being a golf PGA golf professional for 30 years and then deciding to go back to school, uh, during COVID was, um, it's been the, the probably the best decision I've ever made. And that's where really my advanced degrees in exercise science, my master's degree there. And then PhD, I'm a PhD for only two years. So I'm still a young PhD, but an old golf pro. Awesome. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so today, Tony, we're going to be talking about your paper, uh, the challenges of coaching using 2D video, uh, sorry, yeah, 2D golf swing video data compared to the challenges of building a 3D technology based coach. I think that's a very sexy hook line of a title, I have to admit. Um, so to start with, um, let's start by talking about kind of the key aims of your project and kind of what your main kind of practical intention in doing that piece of research was about. Well, you know, being a golf instructor for so long, I originally had a Sony system back in the day that we used to draw lines on a TV screen using video cameras. And the first computer system out there, the NEAT system, was a $10,000 system. So I've been been involved in this. I couldn't afford the 10,000, like Lewis was talking about with the optical motion capture systems, which are 40 to $100,000. It was out of budget, but that's, but using video has always been a part of my teaching because we see things and we can kind of learn from what we see. But what we've also learned is that 2D vision is flat and doesn't represent what we see in our eyes from a stereoscopic perspective like the foresight launch monitors build around it's built around how we see and how our eyes are positioned so we can get some depth uh out of a, a 2d video gotcha okay so they kind of is born out of that your coaching side of things and thinking about how it's been done, I guess, historically over a long time and actually how that might not be the most appropriate way, I guess, to, to, to actually analyze the golf swing. Exactly. And one of the things that, that, you know, being an instructor and then with my students, you know, which has ranged from PGA Tour winners, senior PGA Tour winners to collegiate players to just the brand new golfers. Um, there's so much information out there nowadays 
that and people draw lines all over the place but what does that really mean in 3d space you know i'm six foot five so my perspective is probably gonna be different i don't know lewis how tall are you not tall enough uh five foot seven <laughs> oh i wish i was that height that's better for golf no it's um, not surely not it makes it uh... You're not. Just, just to clarify, you're not. You're not touchy about that, Lewis, are you? By the sound of it. <laughs> no, I just. I, I, no, no, I own it. I own it. I'm happy being a dwarf. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's genetics. It's genetics. We cannot. We, you know, we can't pick our parents, so we, that's what we've dealt with. So, but that was the thing is, you know, uh, and and for example, I, I'll be very specific with a student of mine, who who he spends more time studying YouTube videos and Instagram and social media posts on everybody and every instructor out there and says, you know, every good tour player does this, you know, let's say their, their, their backsides up against the wall, you know, and they draw lines. And, and that was really the, the kind of the, the, the big premise is when people challenged me about how I was teaching, they would draw a line here and say, see, it's not the same. It's like, well, hold on, where's the camera angle? You know, if all of a sudden the cameraman is shooting Tiger Woods and he happens to be left of his target line, it's going to look different than if the camera's right on the target line. And so trying to get that 3D information across to the individual and having them realize that, hey, not every good tour player does it one way or another way. And camera angles are very, very um, flat. So, you know, it's sometimes you look at a ball flight and it looks like it's darting off to the right well that's because of how cameras are and, and so we have to work around those limitations of those cameras gotcha gotcha so with that in mind then and kind of where we're going with the direction of, of, of the paper and exploring it how did you go about kind of uh doing this kind of research what what kind of what did you do in the project to actually start to pick apart some of the kind of limitations and what potential solutions there are how did you actually do that well, my PhD is in human factors engineering. I'm not a programmer. So I knew I needed to get some programming people involved to look at computer vision, which is, you know, how computers analyze video. Um, and then when we started looking into it, you know, human pose is something I've always been interested in because if we can create three-dimensional space from 2D cameras to kind of offer a cheaper solution compared to the optical motion capture solutions, you know, which which is the gold standard for academia, but there's still, you know, artifact movements. You know, you have the markers move on the skin or on the clothing. So nothing's completely accurate, but how can we get to more of a biomechanical analysis and a correct analysis to help golfers using 2D video? So um, computer vision has probably just, uh, it's peaking out right now, or I wouldn't say it's it's accelerating upward. Um, you know, we'll talk later about Sportsbox AI, which is, I would say, is the best 2D, uh, 3D, 2D to 3D capture system right now. Until uh, we get ours going, but before uh, before you jump before you that. continue there, Tony, just want to clarify a few things then, so that so the listeners have pure clarity. So you spoke about almost a gold standard aspect there being the uh, optical motion capture. Okay, so what we're talking about here to to those to the audience listening is we're talking about having a camera system surrounding the zone um, that we're actually performing the golf swing. 
and that camera system effectively fires light and those light bounces off reflective markers back into the camera okay and then we start to understand where the body is in 3d space and that's the gold standard that's the kind of thing that you see on hollywood movies like pirates of the caribbean where they've got the guy with the tentacles and you've got um i can't think of any other movies avatar potentially as well is another yeah. one um so th that's the very accurate um and that's the gold standard for measuring things you then mentioned something else there tony the human pose what's that about so human pose is really the the research initiative of using 2d video to infer 3d space so it's it's using machine learning uh, machine learning programming so you have all these different type of techniques um and I, I don't know i don't think it's worthwhile to jump into the techniques but if you want to just type up mm -hmm. computer vision and uh and human pose estimation then um papers without uh with papers with code is a good place to go and you can see everything about human pose human pose is um I mean, uh, uh, I'll Google, you know, Meta, all of them have different algorithms that you can now download for free and hook it up to your, run it in your computer browser, have a video being played and you can see lines, you know, those annotation lines on the, which represent the skeleton. So it's kind of the cheap version of 3D motion capture, like you mentioned with the optical motion with the little markers um going so it's mm -hmm. it's a it's an inference to where the skeleton is with 2d video that's what human pose as estimation gotcha. is gotcha so drawing back then to sorry to pause you on that but the methodology so what do you actually do then in this research project what was your kind of methods around it so what we did we were working with gear sports so we actually brought their optical motion capture system out to the golf course on the range and we had golfers come in and with the gear system, if you've never been on it, you have to kind of wear a suit. So you kind of wear a vest, a black vest, and there's markers already in particular places. And it's strapped around you. And we had golfers hit driver, uh, seven irons and wedges. We actually had over 1,300 swings. And when you look at, we captured at 240 frames per second. Um, and then we also used three different devices at different angles. So face on, and then two, two camera angles at about 22 and a half degrees off center shooting that. So in total, I mean, we had, uh, let's see. So we had 1,350 videos. You times that by 48, uh, 480 frames. We had a lot of information, different frames to go through. Um, and so what then our job was with that is to actually annotate that. And, and annotation is like, you know, Lewis does annotation. If he draws a line on a screen or Dan, Daniel, you draw a line on a screen looking at golf swings, that's an annotation. So what we ended up doing is uh, we thought, okay, this shouldn't be too difficult. Let's just go and find some software that automates the animation, uh, the annotation process. Uh, that does not exist. So you have to go in there and manually annotate key frames. Now, fortunately, we did find a, a, a software a software solution out of the UK that allowed did some interpolation between those keyframes. So we actually did 48 keyframes for those 480 videos for one swing, and mm -hmm. and then had interpolation. So think about it: you moved one frame, you had to go and put a dot on the hip joint, knee joint, ankle joint, other leg, arms, torso, head. 
and you had to do this for each 40 frame, 48 uh, keyframes. Um, it, and it and was these very Marcus, challenging. Tony, are these, yeah, are, are these Marcus, Tony, we're talking joint centers that we're putting these markers on? Um, we'll say estimated joint centers. Well? They're supposed to be joint centers. Okay. Now, what we learned is because we, we contracted out with this company because we realized, okay, after doing it just ourselves for a little bit, this was going to take forever. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, yeah. we reached out to them and said, hey, do you have a service that could come in and put these dots uh, on, on the golf, on these uh, videos? And they said, sure. We, we spoke with one company. They said, for $100,000, we'll do it. And we went, whoa. Okay, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, and so we found another company. And I, we, we realized what they were talking about is doing every 480 frames, putting dots on 480 frames. So we were able wow. to get that down to about $10,000 um with this one company and but the problem was and my job you know being having a master's degree in exercise science you know uh, and i'm not quite as fluent as you are daniel because i jumped in the engineering side of things but you know when you look at the human body and you're trying to es- estimate where the hip joint is and the shoulder joint is in movement um unless you know the body and people are wearing clothes you know different anthropometrics different body sizes where is that joint center? And so we just had, you know, mm-hmm. the, the company that did it, did, you had maybe one or two people did a pretty good job. The rest of it was not good. It took us almost, it mm-hmm. took us over, over a year to annotate those correctly. And then what we did was... And, that's from, and, that, is, and that is from taking 2D footage and then getting a company to annotate all the way through. We need to remember for the listeners here that what we're talking about is that in a video, if you're recording at 250 frames per second, that's 250 photos of the golfer every single second. Okay, that's a lot wow. of individual photos that we're having to try and annotate. And then obviously you're trying to multiply that by the number of swings that Tony said. It's a lot that needs to be done. Hence why I guess you then approach somebody and found a way to not do it manually. Um, so you've you've taken that, and but then you also did a 3D system as well. Did you gears at the same time? Yeah, so the the machine learning part then does take the 3D information, matches it up to the XY coordinates of the 2D information, and we start inferring depth. The other problem we realized, we ran into was because everyone had to wear the suit, basically we had almost the same person, unless they were left-handed, we had the same person represent that. And when we look at 2D video, you know, you can't really differentiate the difference between Lewis and myself. Is Lewis standing next to me? Is Lewis further away from me? Mm-hmm. Is that the reason why his XY coordinates are different than mine? Am I closer to the camera? The camera, mm-hmm. the system can't do that. So we unfortunately, after running the, the modeling for the, for the machine learning, um, it wasn't good at all. It was really, really bad. And mm. it's like, okay, let's, let's, we have to rethink this. And we kind of, um, we're, we've decided to work with, uh, another research institute that has a little bit better system and says, okay, let's make the golf model that we collected. We're going to partner up with them, uh, this year and build a, a, a system that will use hopefully two to four cameras, maybe. I want to get down to one, but I'm happy with two cameras and it could be two mobile devices. So talking about, we'll talk about later about that hybrid solution is that hopefully Lewis, we can uh, get you in a nice affordable system here uh, mm. this year. 
Okay, sounds awesome. So when we're talking there then, Tony, so we've got golfers swinging the swings that we have, and you've got multiple cameras that are measuring 2D video, just like a standard golf pro would use for analysis. Um, the Gears 3D system, was that to combine with the 2D or was that to compare? No, that's to combine with the 3D. So it, machine learning, any type of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence programming, you have to tell the computer the answer first. And then you have your gotcha. initial data. Gotcha. So this way it figures out the algorithms and the and, and um, to make it match. So if you think of just, um, I don't know, I don't want to get too scientific on this, but, you know, a linear regression model, you know, um, uh, machine learning just does it instead of just having maybe one or two factors, it may have a hundred or a thousand different factors involved in this model. And so it becomes a little bit more accurate. But if we don't tell the computer what the answer is, it'll never know. So that's what we're trying to say. Okay, the 3D is here. Here's the 2D, and we need to figure out which pathway does the computer need to compute to get to that point. So if you have great information, gotcha. you'll have a good model. But if you have poor information, and because of colors, you know, there's the red, green, and blue in, in video, um, and you use the same thing, that was one of the troubles we ran into. If everything is black, and now you show a green pixel mm -hmm. area, it will, is that the same? Now Now the computer doesn't know what to do with it because it's a different color. You haven't programmed it, the model, what to do. Gotcha. So Penny, Penny's dropped for me there now. So effectively, like, like you're saying, you're trying to see if we can use these 2D videos to effectively estimate 3D, effect, accurate and reliable 3D motion, and you're comparing that to the gears 3d system to say this is what it is can we from these cameras get to something that's close to that and what you found from what you did in the initial start is there's a lot of issues with that 2d related thing is that kind of accurate there tony that's actually spot on daniel that is spot on that's that's Perfect. trouble we run into great stuff and um, so let's then just talk a little bit more broadly then for the pros about well, what issues are there with, with the 2D stuff? I know we just spoke about some of the uh, color-related stuff, but I remember from looking at your paper, you also said some aspects around something called occlusion as well. Um, we've already covered manual label labeling, which we spoke about everybody about how long it takes to actually label each of those joint centers. We've spoken about that. What issues are there present as well that could be valuable to know? So let's take a look at, and I'll see if I can demonstrate this. An occlusion is basically, okay, if, I, if this camera right now, you can track my hand. Well, it's now behind me, but my hand's still there, but now the camera can't see it. So it's, it's occluded. So obviously in the golf swing, if I'm making a backswing, you know, for me, I'm a right-handed golfer, so I'm making my right shoulder joint is behind my head. The camera doesn't know where to put that dot or the computer doesn't know where to put that, that key joint. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the simple thing of uh, occlusion. So you'll see that obviously when you do front on, you know, Lewis, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and being an instructor myself, uh, you know, how much did the person rotate? How much did the chest rotate? You know, when, and the arms kind of get in the way and then, you know, what's the risk doing? So we have 
have that problem with with the, that's that's occlusion when when an object can't be seen by the camera because it's uh, covered by another object. Yeah, I totally get that. Like when you've got a player, you might be filming them down the line, and you might want to actually see where they are at, like say, like um, waist height in the follow through, like P P eight P nine that sort of area. You can't see their hands unless you look at face on, or you go stand in front of them and film back towards them and obviously ducking out the way of a golf ball. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I get that. I get that. that, that that's, that's gone in, I understand. <laughs> and that also leads us to the second point there, Tony, though, around the parallax error. So if you want to explain to people, when we're talking about angles, where the issues can come with that as well. So let me ask Lewis, where, if you, when you shoot down the line, which would be a sagittal view perspective, where do you generally position your camera? And I'm not worried about height right now. Um, and, and, and I'll. And... Yeah, no. So I've always been told to have it sort of between about 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 hip to hands sort of area, roughly, um, and then at that similar height as well. Um, so I know you said don't worry about height, but yeah, about there. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It does. That is one of the spots that I'll use. So yeah, parallax will be down or yeah. So, yeah. So let's say, okay, so we have Lewis's camera at parallax at uh, his position. Now I position my camera, let's say, because one thing I do, and this is something that I, I you may want to try out Lewis. If you, if you don't is I will use multiple positions based on what I want to see the student work on. So, so what, and let's say I put, let's say we really want to focus in on club impact. Cause you know, I don't, let's say I don't have the foresight hooked up yet, mm -hmm. which, which that's what I have. So, um, uh, I'll put the camera down the target line to really kind of see where that club is coming into the ball. Well, when we, when he makes that backswing, that the student makes a backswing and, and we get to P2, which is shaft parallel to the ground. From my camera angle and Lewis's camera angle, that position will look different on the screen. Agreed. That's parallax. So basically parallax is from, you know, what's an object look like from two different perspectives? Um, you know, and when we look down the road, we have convergence, you know. So now what does, you know, an alignment, golfer's alignment is probably one of the hardest things for golfers to us to correct and get correct. Um, correct as in they need to fix it and correct to make sure they do it right. Um, is because I look at my, the target from, let's say I'm behind the ball. Now, when I get standing up to my, the, the ball, I'm now looking at the side. Well, that target is now looking, I'm looking at it from a different angle. And it looks like it's moving all over the place and where my body is lined up and stuff like that. So that's really a big challenge behind 2D video is how do we manage that? And what, what scenarios there though, Tony? Because you said that you might position that camera differently depending on what you're trying to look at. How do you do that? Like, what example potentially would you use where you wouldn't have it where Lewis said between the hands and the hips? Okay, uh, one specific spot is I will move it to more of, let's say, you know, we have a golfer that is early extending that's just kind of coming up. And we, and we deem that as being, okay, that's a little too much. 
And, and, you know, it has a lot to do with where the club face is, what the grip is, and we're fixing those. But let's say we want this player needs to have a little bit more rotation. I'll move the camera to the back side of the hip or the glutes, you know, the, 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 the rear, and say, okay, I want the camera there. So this way I can see, see the person now comes way off the line. You know, instead of saying, okay, I need to stay in posture till we get back down to P6. You know, I don't care what happens at impact, but at least through P6, we got to be working down. So I'll move the camera over to that line. Um, I've experimented with putting the camera up on top, up above, which is the best view to see rotation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this way we can actually now see how much the, the, the torso, upper torso and the lower torso are rotating. We can see how much the arm comes in, you know, whether the, the lead arm is adducting um, or the trail arm is abducting. So um, that that's the sort of thing. But that's that's when I had a, the, the facility to do it. You know, when you're outside, mm -hmm. I haven't quite put the camera up on top, but that's something I, you know, uh, it's not a bad idea doing. So, yeah. So depending on what I want the player to do, obviously, and, like and Lewis... Purpose. And, and the purpose there, though, is to make sure that you're getting accurate measurements for what you're trying to measure. Because if you're putting it in certain positions and you're trying to measure torso rotation, let's say, uh, a shoulder rotation, and you're measuring it from a low camera in front, the angles and rotation you're going to get from that are going to be very different and probably very inaccurate compared to the one that Tony's saying above us here where we can start to get that rotation. Mm. Yeah, totally get it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. So we've covered kind of the convergence there, occlusion. We've covered parallax too. Um, simple one, the background and the colours, Tony. How are those issues potentially? and How can we solve them? Um, you know, a lot of that had to do with trying to train the model. So okay. if you're wearing, let's say I'm wearing um, a grey uh, pullover now, and let's say I'm outside and it's a cloudy day. And now all of a sudden from the camera, these colors are so close together that the, the, the model doesn't know, hold on, is that, where am I supposed to put this in space? Because mm -hmm. it, it's, a, it's a different color. So we have to make sure there's enough robustness um, in the model, in the 3D model, in the human pose model, that can under, the system will understand that no matter what color I'm wearing, it goes here. So, um, mm -hmm. That's some of the challenges, you know, and then if you're wearing green, um, mm. you know, and you're outside, you know, because one of the goals that we have is actually to take all the research laboratory equipment that you're very familiar with, Daniel. And, um, you know, not to say Lewis isn't, but I don't know if he's how much time he's spent in the lab, but I know Daniel has with his degrees. Not the same as Dan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but can, what can we do to take that type of equipment, make it cost effective and usable? I'm going to use the word mm -hmm. usable outside. So when this way, Lewis has a great usable system. It's cost effective. So he, this way he doesn't have to charge his, his students uh, extreme fees, um, mm -hmm. you know, to recoup, recoup that money. So that's our goal is to take the lab out to the, the golf course. Gotcha, gotcha. So what's 
what's quite interesting then to, to look at where we've traveled so far in in the podcast really that's very that's very uh, hippie term that isn't it really but um where, where we've got to so far right now um i, I guess what we've, we've identified is that initially that there are some issues with 2d analysis if we're trying to estimate where the body is in 3d space be that through machine learning or be that also through the ability of us to understand where that is from 3D from 2D video. There are some issues with that and we've covered some of those key related aspects. And then I guess it comes down to your aims of the project, really talking about, well, actually with these issues, um, if we're looking at it from an on-screen analysis perspective, there are potentially better ways to analyze and, and understand the 3D motion. Obviously, doing this really expensive 3D motion capture that we spoke about earlier um, is the gold standard, the best way to do it. Most cost effective, uh, sorry, not most cost effective, the least cost, <laughs> the most expensive um, for uh, professionals to actually use. Um, now, just, just on that, I'm just going to pause there at the moment because what I would say is the way that I can see going forward in the future, and hopefully we get to this point within golf, is that golf professionals can start to use universities as well to help analyze their golfers. Because I know here uh, at the University of Derby, we have a golf analysis package and we aim to help support professionals in our area in the way that if the golfers want to come to the university and get their swing analyzed, we can provide them with that gold standard detail. And then we can provide that report back to the pro with the player to really give them that detailed analysis, allowing us to utilize for the pros, for example, to utilize that really um, gold standard expensive equipment in a way that's effectively affordable. Um, so hopefully I can see in the future that maybe universities around the world can start offering this kind of thing for golf professionals and golf players. Um, but I totally understand the fact that that's gonna be far and few between the places can actually do that uh, and how you can then meet that in the middle. And I guess that's what we're talking about here. What is then the best way that you can really start to use uh, and analyze 3d motion capture so my my next kind of question to you then tony is well what's wrong with using wearable sensors what's wrong with having the imus um stuck on golfers bodies like what's the issue with that and can you just give them a bit of context to start off with around what is currently on offer for on that kind of area of 3d motion capture okay I, I got to be careful with this because obviously there are many challenges with IMUs. So let's kind of go over some of the challenges, knowing that we are trying to overcome those. If we can overcome these challenges, then you can have a great system. So let's start out with um, uh, using notch sensors. Notch, sen notch sensors, and there's a company, and I don't Again, I think it's a great company, so it's it's nothing against that company. But they have this is not a notch sensor. We have them, but um, it's about the size of a quarter, and you can put these all over your body. Well, first of all, how do you calibrate fourteen or different sensors or ten different sensors in order to get a full body representation? What happens when if my if the sensor moves but my arm doesn't move? Well, now did my arm my, now according to their software my arm moved, so you know that became a very much challenge. Another thing with sensors, 
on, on that, Tony, um, yep. if we got you your players there, Lewis, um, so the way to kind of avoid that movement is to just get all of your golfers uh, to strip down into their boxes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's achievable? Definitely, in the right setting, yeah. I mean, um, on that note, actually, there is a video somewhere of uh, Matt Fitzpatrick in a gym. I think he might be with, uh, is it Dr. Kwan? Um, and he's hitting yeah. shots into a net in a gym nearly butt naked he, he has got uh, his private area uh, covered so um there's obviously some benefit to that <laughs> yeah yeah well that's why i just thought i'd bring it up there because obviously that's what tony was talking about with the movement if we're sticking it on clothes yeah. the clothes can move yeah. skin moves as well but obviously yes. less i suppose than clothes but anyway carry on tony sorry to interrupt <laughs> yeah no no i i, I know dr kwan i've been to his lab so you know that's with our optical motion lab, I mean, that's what we have players do, you know, um, you know, or, or the, you know, when you bring in female softball players to do a, a motion analysis for pitching, let's say we do that too. And it's like, okay, well, we can't take off the clothes. Guys can go topless. Can't do that with the, 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 the softball players. So that's very challenging. <laughs> so another thing that happens. So yeah, we, we got to figure that part out, but another thing that happens and, and a lot of systems have overcome this is let's say I have this IMU sitting here and all of a sudden after a period of time, let's say I'm out playing golf and I'm wearing this on my, my wrist or my hand, all of a sudden it shows up that on the computer or on your mobile device, it shows up that the markers way over here, the sensors way over here. So that's called inertial drift. Unfortunately, because we have, and fortunately, because we have gravity and, and magnetism, some of these sensors are getting thrown off. So they have to be constantly recalibrated. You know, also mm -hmm. you move, um, the sensor comes off, it pops off because, you know, there's a lot of speed to it. So calibrating with that. So having a lot of sensors to me is uh, one way of doing it. There's several companies that do it for golf and for other sports. Um, it is cheaper than optical motion capture, like we talked about with the reflective markers that Hollywood uses, but they're also very challenging. Um, now, what if what can we do with a single watch or a single IMU? Um, that you know, those are some of the things we're looking in for. So, I don't want to say that these are bad because they're great and we're going to be using those, but we have to figure out how to manage that. And management, you know, if I'm an average golfer, let's say, Lewis, like you're teaching your students how to use cameras. Now, you, let's say you gave them a, a you know, a, depending on how detailed you want to go, let's say we've got two, four, six, eight, 10, 12 sensors. Now you have to hand those 12 sensors to the golfer. They got to now manage it, put them all on. Mm -hmm. How do you strap them on? How do you calibrate it to the joints, limb segments? Um, generally the average golfer, I don't think is going to do that. No. At least I haven't been wanting to try that. I'd love to get your take on it. I would love to get the average golf to do it, but it's, yeah, again, like you say, it's very unlikely. Um, I did notice when I went to the PGA show last year, the gears guys were there and there was a moment where they had to get people to pause and wait for it to calibrate. They had to sort of freeze and then right, right now it's time to hit the shot. Is that right with the gear system? That is correct, because we have you have to make sure those markers relate to you. So again, yeah. let's just take me and you because of the different anthropometrics. That mo that model has to now be be uh, put into the right relationship so it makes sense. So everything's going to have to have a calibration. 
uh, with wearable technology that we're working on, we need it to be as invisible as possible. So it's as simple as uh, putting into putting on a pair of socks yeah. and having this, you know, the systems just kind of self calibrate just because you're standing up. That's pretty simple. Good plug. Or you, very, very you good know. plug, that one. Yeah. Is that a good plug? <laughs> I saw yeah. that too. I was I, like, I, yeah, I, I got to do that. Got to do that. You know, being CEO of, and a co-founder of a uh, wearable tech company, um, you know, shameless plug, but. No, it's fine. <laughs> I, I would love to tr be able to try it out. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think. I think. Go on, Dan, go on. Go for it. I was just going to say, that is a tagline. That is. I think for your product, to be honest with you. But there we go. <laughs> Moving on. So, go, go for it, Lewis. What are you going to say? Um, no, I, all I was going to say is I've come across wearable stuff before. Like, you see people down the range wearing, like, um, there's there's been apps where they put their phone in their back pocket and it tells them how much their pelvis has moved. There's the ZEP, which they've clipped onto their belt or put on the back of their glove and bits and bobs like that. But again... I think my question is, is how accurate can that be? And I, I do wonder sometimes when I've had people come to lessons going, oh, check this out. What do you think of the information? And I think they're useful tools. But again, like how accurate is it and how misleading could it potentially be for that player when they go to practice? So here's actually our sensor that we're using for our wearables. So this is for our wearable sockets. It's very... I mean, it's the size of a quarter, probably lighter than a quarter. Um, accuracy is very accurate. You know, we can, we're measuring at a hundred Hertz uh, and we can get, you know, up to 2000 degrees per second measured. So, you know, if we look at the human eye, which is operates about 30 frames per second, we need high speed cameras to see what the club hits the ball. Until we get to like 500 frames per second, you don't, we don't know as being a golf instructor, we don't know what the club is actually doing and the ball that inner relationship, even with video. Uh, and, and this is one thing I, I forgot to mention with video is frames per second. You know, originally 30 frames per second, not fast enough. Shaft, if, if you guys remember, you'd see videos, uh, pictures of golfers like the shaft is really bowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah that's that has nothing that's not what's happening it has to do with the frame rate and the type of whether it's a global or progressive shutter speed or shutter system um you know because it it only picks up at different times so these can be real accurate but it's you know and this will get into the usable what's usable and that's what we at least what i give to the the my students is Here's some usable information that pertains to you that's going to help you out. Um, does it matter if it's, you know, if we're within five degrees, that's actually very acceptable. You know, if we look at optical motion capture system, which is uh, the markers that Dan, you were referring to that, that kind of glow when you put some infrared light on it and are being tracked for Hollywood, um, that will have a range between 10 and 30 millimeters of error. So, and about five degrees of plus minus five degrees is, well, five degrees total. So plus or minus two and a half degrees of variance yeah. is what with this, you know, from, does the average golfer really need to know, okay, you know what? You turned 87.254 that turn. The one before was 87. You know, we're that, that quarter of a de degree off. Is that going to really make that big of a difference? So what usable information 
versus the precision of it. Because no system is ever perfectly, or no system yeah. is perfect. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. One of my big thoughts here, though, is it's separate to the point we're making here, but it's just about, I guess, a good message to think about being if you're a PJ Pro and you're looking at equipment and you're looking actually, is it? Does it measure what it actually says it measures, and is that accuracy good enough for what you need it to do? Because I personally am of the belief that products that do motion capture you need to be careful to check that the accuracy of the product is accurate enough to know that it's actually worthwhile and that's the point that you were telling they're saying there lewis around this sensor or whatever it was that was that you had is it actually valuable is it actually useful and to me it comes down to the fact of well does it measure what it says it does to a point of accuracy that is valuable and I think Tony's coming to the to the other end of that in saying, well, actually, there's a, there's an amount of accuracy that's tolerable because actually you don't need to know if it's within a degree, but you need to know whether or not it's within ten degrees, for example. Yeah. So that's kind of my point. I just wanted to make on that is as as pros listening to this potentially, if you're looking at equipment that's looking at motion capture, I would personally want to be going and looking at whether or not the accuracy of the system is accurate enough for what you need it to be accurate for. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely, you know, if you make change in someone's swing or they make change in their own swing, it shows up. That's basically all you're looking for, isn't it? You're looking for them to make a swing or a movement, get that baseline number, and then make a change to that baseline number, whether it be plus or minus. And hopefully, if you then go and video in 2D or, or whatever you capture it with, you'll see a change. In, in the swing path or the uh, the plane or angle of attack or, or whatever. Exactly. So if you think about it, let's say we, we have this attached to, you know, the, the, the hand or the wrist. But the system always told you that it was, let's say, five. I'm just arbitrary number. But if we actually scientifically measure it, it says, no, it's zero. But five always showed up. And you could relate then five to a particular motion. That's usable information. Like So that kind of blends into what, what, what we're kind of talking about. That's, that's what we want. That's, that's wearable technology right now. What we don't want is, and this happened in a, in a basketball study when we were working with the, the the men's basketball team here, and that was part of my dissertation, is they were wearing uh, some wearables, and the person was dribbling a ball. And the, the sensor counted it as steps. person wasn't <laughs> moving. So, yeah, it was very accurate. It counted motion very accurately, but it wasn't usable because it showed up that this person ran like 30 miles through a practice but it was picking up the dribbling motion you know and, and a lot of times so yeah that's what we have to be careful to make sure that what is it that the system is telling us it's measuring and what's the relationship between the sensor and how that's constructed and a lot of times some companies we don't know you know uh they're very non-transparent you know that yeah. that's kind of getting into more of the wearable tech uh world is They'll talk about load that a player will go through, which isn't particular particular to golf, because I don't want to get into weight shift right now. But 
it's like, how much did I work? Well, that's going to be different for everybody. Well, no, this system says you work too much today. Well, hmm. no, no, no. Maybe for somebody else that's not in good shape, but you know, so yeah. So we have to just make sure that this matches to what we want it to measure and what the outcomes are. We got to be real careful. Yeah. Um, one thing I'll just kind of summarize some of your initial issues that you kind of highlighted with the uh, wearable IMU related stuff. Actually, a lot of them were practical, weren't they, Tony? They were more issues around calibration, issues around drift, uh, not drifting. Was it drifting for that one? I can't remember that one now. But yeah, there was some there was drift a... on that. Okay. Um, and also the complexity of operation and uh, the number of placement of them that go on. I think a lot of them are practical related, aren't they? In the way that if you're getting a coach to try and do that with players, there's a long start point of calibration and there's a long making sure everything works properly and then if it doesn't work you've got to redo so it kind of creates barriers in using that as a 3d motion capture is, is that fair to say very fair to say uh for and i'll use this for an example like if we were to determine ankle dorsiflexion or plantar flexion or motion you know as a person's coming up on their swing so plantar flexion is pushing down dorsiflexion is coming up so player increases dark. A sensor can't is would have to measure all three planes of movement within the foot. The foot's very flexible inside the shoe. Well, the system, the, the one system we were were evaluating, um, they had it pre-programmed that this movement created this type of plantar flexion or dorsiflexion. But in that's not what happened in real life. So that was a limitation of the system that you have to be really careful. So um, I will say that I think as long as the system says, hey, these are our limitations, we're not measuring this because we can't do it accurately, then that's a good, useful system. And that's when, um, you know, so being companies that should be transparent um, are going to be your better companies that you'd want to work with. Gotcha. Three things I want to pull up just before we move on to the next bit. Tony, could you hold up the white thing you held up earlier? Oh, this is just a block. <laughs> Apple block. Just, just, just for the listeners, that's not an IMU. <laughs> that is, is a USB plug. <laughs> this is an IMU. Yeah, I had to pull this one out. It's like, why am I using this when I got one sitting right next to me? So, yeah, this is a 9 uh IMU that we're using cool. in our pressure sock. And also into uh, – go ahead – uh, probably late to the party on this question. What does IMU stand for? Inertial measurement unit. So okay. in this, we have uh, accelerometer. So things that change direction, yeah. X, Y, and Z. We have a gyroscope. So we have rotation around those axes. And we have a magnetometer. So that's relative to northern North Pole. Let's keep it that way. So that's where the nine DOF comes into. So degrees of freedom uh, the, is the DOF. So, okay. um, yeah, so that's what that is. Got it. And also to clarify, because I was going to clarify that, Lewis, so thanks for that. The second thing also was what the term calibration means. I think some people might not really get that, but effectively it measures what it's meant to be measuring. So let's say you stand on some scales and you're expecting 70 kilograms. You get on the scales, it's 100 kg. That could be because it's just been Christmas. Uh, <laughs> or it could be the fact that your calibration on your uh, scales are off um, and you want to make sure that what you're measuring is actually what you're measuring. So, for example, you could put a 70 kilogram weight on that, you know, 70 kg. You could put it on the scales 
you calibrate it to say that is 70 kilograms. You can then get on it and then it's calibrated. So a similar kind of principle there with some of those sensors, um, making sure that they are actually measuring what they're meant to. All good with that, Tony? Spot on. Love it. Good stuff. Right. So I think we've covered quite a lot so far, which is which is absolutely brilliant. That then leads us on to the um, hybrid model, I think. I think we've spoken a little bit about it already. Is there more to talk about with the hybrid model then, Tony? The hybrid model is the utilizing video with the sensors so we can start inferring some 3D motion within what we see with 2D. That's going to be the cost-effective way of doing this um, until we can get cost-effective 3D, uh, which I would say, well, I, I think in five years you'll see – Lewis, I can guarantee in five years, you'll be able to have a cost-effective 3D solution, camera solution using 2D cameras. Um, so that the hybrid is using sensors with video right now. And that's, that's the thing we're gonna be launching uh, hopefully this summer that will give us both 3D information along with that we'll have the 2D video. And did your project that we're talking about here, did that actually measure the hybrid system or is it kind of proposing that as future related aspects? Uh, we've already done that. We've already have that. So, uh, you know, in the laboratory, we'll call it laboratory. So, we, you know, the future stuff is going to be really cool because that gets into augmented reality, how we display 3D information in, a, in, in the real world um, and things like that. So, yeah, we're, we're there right now. The, the future stuff is really, really cool, which we'll get into depth cameras, um, which you can actually do right now. You can actually take, if you, now again, you have to understand, I got my Apple watch on, um, I've got my iPad here. Uh, you can actually use the depth camera on these to record golf swing videos and get, and it shows up as different colors. Something closer to you shows up as red. Something further away shows up as blue. And I've used it, uh, but unfortunately, it's only 30 frames per second, so we, we, we miss some things. But we can start doing some things like that. But the, the, the 2D video and the IMUs are, are, will be ready to go this year. They used to have, did anyone, either of you use uh, an Xbox Kinect back in the day? They were great. Yeah, Depth yeah. cameras for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was quite a while ago, wasn't it? Um, so to summarize kind of the research so far then, Tony, so we've got to the point, obviously, the end of that project where you, you did the measurements through the 2D cameras and then tried to match that artificial intelligence in some way with that gear stuff. But are you saying what you found through that project is that at the moment, that pairing in that one project, it wasn't good enough to be able to do that? Is that kind of where you got to in it? Correct. Yeah. One thing with science, failure is actually a good thing because you learn what doesn't work, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the reason why we're partnering up with uh, another research institute that has a little bit more advanced uh, process on the, their model. And we'll be working with them. And I will have that in our, in our new golf science engineering performance laboratory, hopefully in March. Well, we'll actually have a markerless motion capture solution that will give us 3D information, uh, you know, just like the, the expensive stuff. And probably for us, it's probably going to cost us about, you know, five, six grand to have that system versus the $40,000 that you'll see maybe like with a gear system. So that's a it's a big reduction. And that's, you know, 
that's definitely going to lead the way to something more cost effective like we have now because you know anybody can be a golf pro in a sense they, they got their the device and can draw lines so but, you know, the better ones, you know, like Lewis and, and Daniel, all your work, you guys are smart enough to know that, hey, let's let's do things correctly. So you have a system and a measurement way of being consistent, which is which is what you need to do from a scientific perspective. So so, Tony, if you're uh, let's say you're going to go to the teaching tea tomorrow, you've got X amount of clients in the diary. Um what does a session look like with you in regards to analysis? What tools are you currently using to do that? Um, and is there any advice for any professionals, including myself listening, that we could take action on tomorrow? That could be downloading apps or using things in a certain way to improve our coaching. Because obviously, I love that we're talking about future stuff and it's exciting. But what could I do tomorrow to improve straight away? What's your thoughts on that? Uh, okay, so let me tell you what we have right now that I'll, I'll that like lives in my car that I'll take out to the range. So I have uh, we, our our system isn't quite ready yet, but we have our body track map, pressure map. Uh, I use V one video that records both the body pressure and and the video. I also use uh, Sportsbox AI to give us three dimension some three dimensional information. And that, again, is we'll say is very usable. You have to look at it. You have to be careful with it. It's not always accurate, but no system is ever perfectly accurate. So I don't think that's a, a diss on sports box. It's just um, they're making some great strides and spent millions of dollars doing it. And I applaud them. Phil Cheatham is doing a phenomenal job with Sportsbox AI and helping them along. So it's, you know, that's something you can pick up right now. You know, you can download the app. Um, pricey. You know, it's I'm not sure what the, the the UK cost is, but you know, if you if if you're teaching full time, the Sportsbox AI is a great way to go if you want to start getting into 3D information. So um, I use a you know I would um, get a taller tripod or figure out a system where we can put that camera up top um, and different things like that. So using multiple cameras. Um, you know, obviously I have a foresight. I would, you know, I have that out there too. So we, I basically bring my lab out to the, the range. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, all that's there, but again, it's cost. But again, what the question is, what, what I've learned though, and I think Lewis, you know, I've been doing this obviously for 25 years, 26 years, 30 years, maybe probably 30. Um, I've developed my own 3D model in my head. And I'm sure like you have, Lewis, you see something, you know exactly what's going on. Yeah. I can hear a shot and tell you if it's on the toe, the heel, high or low. I don't need a, I, I know what's inside out, what's outside in. I know approximately what is three degrees inside out, what's four degrees outside in within variance. But it's because I've trained myself with these tools to see it. And as an instructor, I think we all have our own models of, of how people move and our, we do it three-dimensionally. So we are very good at that, but the, it's nice to have those tools to validate what we see. Yeah, totally. Like our, our skill set, um, obviously you should be able to use those tools, but also to be not reliant on them. Um, that That's why we're in our profession. I think one thing that I kind of want to highlight is that 
hopefully this conversation has got people thinking about it's not just walking down with your tripod and your camera and setting it wherever you want as a pro and just uh, wherever you want in broad strokes talking about in front and down the line and you're just setting it there there's more that you can really think about about how you can set that up correctly so that if you're really focusing on trying to look at someone's rotation you set it at the right angle that exactly like Lewis said, that if we can make sure that you're consistent in the spots that you put it and the height that you put it, if you're looking for changes, that's really valuable to note that. Um, and then also to consider, which I think Tony uh, loaded to, but in a different avenue, is thinking about where you're measuring and the background you've got. And is that the best place to spot changes and issues? Because there might be too bright for you to really see some key aspects in the video. And just really just thinking about what you're doing when you're recording and actually is there a better more accurate and repeatable way to do that i think is is a message that i kind of wanted to to throw out there with that so what i was going to also ask was um from a lay golfer perspective tony if you're there on the range you're a you're a 20 handicap golfer, you want to go and analyze your swing. What would be a good thing to invest in? Is a tripod and a, just to put your phone in a good idea, would you recommend maybe getting a GoPro or something similar to kind of get a better quality? Is there any kind of tips you could give those guys too? Can, can I put an asterisk or put things in quotes right now? I've been around some of the greatest athletes in the world. I thought, you know, and I, I, I want to make sure this is in context because it could be taken out of context. I questioned some of their knowledge, their lack, what seemed to be a lack of knowledge. They were brilliant athletes. They knew how to move. They knew what their movements felt like, and they could do it better than I ever could. I always thought I needed to know more to perform better. But thinking from a motor control standpoint, the more I think, the slower my performance. You know, we don't think how we walk, we don't think how we run, but we can use video to change those mechanics if we need to. So I like to use you know, just a camera, everyone, you know, nowadays, I would say majority of people have a smartphone device, you know, recorded in slow-mo and make sure that I would actually record off on angles at 45 degree angles, because that kind of, you know, which we've done, I've done, I'll do it sometimes too. You can get in points crosses this way. People can kind of see a little bit more depth. And then say, okay, what does my good swing look like? Let's create a baseline of what a good swing looks like. What is good timing? I'd be curious to see if the average golfer could tell the difference in timing between a good and bad swing. Because there's movement variability in human motion. And this gets into some original motor control research back in the 1960s uh, out of Russia with Dr. Bernstein that showed hammering there was variability in this person's hammering, but he was a skilled craftsman. The hammer always struck at the right spot, but how he got there 
was was a little bit different, but it always centered up. That's the thing I would kind of be careful with, um, with just saying, hey, do this and do this and it's going to improve. Uh, and that's the thing we're recognizing with our wearable technologies. We have to personalize it and create a baseline. So that's one thing I would say is find and establish a baseline with your camera technology until we get ours ready. <laughs> How's that for a shameless plug? <laughs> Getting so good Love at it. it. It's great. Love it. <laughs> great stuff. So basically, I think we've come to a, to a nice kind of point there. We've also identified 2D. Majority of people use that. Um, some issues that potentially are present, but how we can try to reduce the issues potentially uh, of consistency and validity effectively, just making sure we're consistent how we do it and getting the right angles and those kind of things for it. In the, to, That is the kind of the most common way of doing it, but actually moving to 3D is going to be obviously better than trying to guess where the body is. Um, and there are ways to do that, wearable sensors, but some issues potentially around practicality um, around those aspects um, there is obviously the very gold standard stuff but again very costly and also difficult to access so what is the next best option and I guess that is really what your paper is starting to really investigate and start to look at well what is a better option is there something where we could use two cameras and an IMU or three cameras to try and get a good accurate model and at the moment from that paper we didn't we couldn't see that kind of accurate uh, kind of way of doing it but there's been developments obviously since and hopefully in the near future we're starting to see um, something that could be really useful for pros for example to use that doesn't require £40,000 potentially of investment, doesn't require 16 markers being put on the body, doesn't require having a full Vicon system set up, something that is practical, cost effective and is accurate enough for what you need it to be. That, that is the goal. And, and, and the other thing to kind of shamelessly plug is what does a person do on the golf course relative to the range when the topography changes? What happens to the swing? Now, again, the tee boxes are relatively flat, so you don't have too much issue there. But if I've got a, a seven iron in my hands and the ball's below my feet, can I make the same pattern? as I do on a flat surface on the range with the same distance and the same club. Uh, they will not be the same patterns. Mm -hmm. So that, that paper will, the case study will, is written up and that will be, that was the other study um, that we did. I did, uh, I should say we to make sure because that's, there's definitely more people involved than just me, but um, that that's showing that and that's our interest in moving outside the lab is, you know, um, and that's another thing a golfer can do. I, I do want to say that is practicing off uneven lies to help change habits is also good. And using different equipment to change habits are doing, doing good. But I would still want to always have a relationship with coach like, like Lewis. You know, and I, I know Daniel did a lot of ski instruction and stuff like that. I, you need somebody external to give you a good perspective because a lot of times we can't see ourselves but you can with video. So, and I, I've, we've experimented some stuff with that where you can watch yourself on video. So, um, and that just kind of came to mind saying that's another good way. If you could watch yourself in video um, move and real, you know, you can do that in the backswing. You can't do it hitting balls, but you can actually practice watching yourself would be a good, another simple solution 
uh, hook up your phone, mirror your phone to your TV, have your camera record you, and then have a TV in front of you inside the house would be another thing that uh, average golfer could easily do. Not hitting a golf ball, like <laughs> not hitting a golf ball. I, I will say, I think in my in my in, in, in my old lab, we used to put up a, like a, a TV on the ground, and I had a plexiglass sheet off of that. And I, as soon as long as the plexiglass was on, no one ever hit a ball that that bad to break the TV. So I had it kind of set back a little bit. Hmm. The one day, plexiglass wasn't on there. Guess what? Somebody hit the TV. So yes, don't hit balls. Be careful with that. (laughs) Just just rewinding back because you you said about external and I just I thought of a podcast that we did the other week and it was all about internal um, stimulus and external uh, stimulus or focus and yeah you're definitely right like like for example there like you're you're talking about watching yourself do something but then obviously we've got training aids and all these other things that are coming out that are going to give you that external feedback and you're not thinking too internally and definitely find that a lot of golfers I teach struggle to take that more fluid motion to the golf course uh, that more playing headspace they're they're stuck in that techie practical headspace and I, I think if these bits of technology could make sure that they have a blend of both worlds and they can hit shots fairly fluidly and make change i think that's a really important thing to to me to sort of say that does that make sense guys oh spot on definitely lewis i mean it that's you know i've, I've been fortunate to spend some time with dr gabriel wolf out of the unlv who's i would say the expert in external focus um and you, i tried to play for a living and like i said i took more lessons uh, and thought more, and my game just got worse and worse and worse. Mm. Um, and then I finally became educated and realized, oh, you, you don't be like that. Like I said, I've been around some great golfers that have been major champions, and I, I knew so much more than they did. I, but, but that's what made me a bad golfer is overthinking. So it's that the traditional paralysis by analysis. Yeah, you took thing. the words so, yeah, from my mouth. Lewis, any technology <laughs> – Great stuff then. I think we've come to a nice kind of end discussion on that. Lewis, have you got any questions before we move on, mate? No, no. Um, only really just backing up the point about the good players. I know a handful of players that, you know, are very, very skilled. But if I started to take a deep dive with them into their swing, they'd they'd have a few bad rounds, I think. <laughs> uh, because they wouldn't want to know that information. They wouldn't want that deep dive. They just want a few nuggets to go and think about. Um, and have a swing thought to just sort of crack on with. Yeah, I, I have a mate who I, um, if he's playing really well on the course, he's a good golfer, um, quite competitive with him. If he's playing well on the course, I suddenly start talking a bit about his technique and looking at what he's doing because <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't seem to like that. So <laughs> Mental warfare, love it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, right, so let's move then on to the uh, last section of the podcast then, which is the uh, effectively a game around golf. So what we've got here, Tony, is where I, you, Lewis as well, we get to voice our annoyances in golf. So effectively, it's a game of what annoys you the most on the golf course. I know it's dangerous, Tony, 
but we'll stick with it. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide you with two options and you have to choose which one is the most annoying. Okay, so okay. in the last uh, episode that we had, um, which was with Chris Joyce from Australia, he set up the first one for us, which is hitting off a range map, but the quality of the map is absolutely awful, so worn down, versus a ball bouncing off the pin when you're putting on a round of golf. Which is the most the annoying? Pin. Oh, the pin. The pin. Why, the, why the RNA and the USGA, and I'm, I'm going to say USGA because I'm not sure on the RNA. Why did they allow that to happen? You know, they banned long putters for a while, and I don't know where that stands now because I'm just getting back into the business. Why did the pin talk about helping? Yes, I'm annoyed by the pin. The pin and the ball <laughs> bouncing off of it. That's not a good thing. Yes, that's Dan, annoying. Dan doesn't like flimsy pins either, we found out last week. Um, he's, got a, he's got a pet hate for flimsy pins. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's leave it at that because I can go down the wrong one. Uh, <laughs> right. So, second thing then. Obviously, you've identified there that poor quality range mat is uh, the most annoying. Oh, no, you didn't actually. You Balls bouncing off the pin is the most annoying wow. for you. So, yeah. is it that or is it now green keepers cutting the hole on a slope? Depends on the speed of the green. So, obviously, if it's really quick, that would annoy me more than the ball bouncing off the pin. If it's real slow where the ball would actually stop on the side, then it wouldn't be so bad. But I, I would still probably lean towards the, the, the why Why did they put it on the slope? The ball's not going to stop on a slope. That's a bad decision. Bad, 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 bad form right there. Okay, well, I'm going to take that as that's the winner out of those two there. So so now we're moving to the third one. Green keepers cutting the hole on the slope, or you're only planned to play nine holes of the 18-hole golf course, but you get through to the nine and you are playing amazing, but you have to leave. So here, I'll give you the example. Here's the, So it started out... so. I was running the golf course here for the university before I went back to school. And we just verified the greens. And obviously, we, at our school, at Mississippi State University, we have a professional golf management program. That's one of my earliest degrees. And the, the kids were kind of complaining that you can't putt on bad greens. And I said, well, it's really more of a mindset. I said, if you put a good roll on the ball, yeah, they're gonna be sanded, you're gonna get some bounces, but the green's imperfect anyhow. You should be able to go out there and putt. They said, oh yeah, show us. So four of us went out there. Birdie the first hole. Make a 60 footer or 50 footer on the second hole for birdie. Birdie the third hole. Birdie the fourth hole. I'm one putting everything, right? I think I made a couple pars, made eagle on a hole. And, and so like, I'm like six under. Anyhow, I was like six under coming into the last hole. And they're going, you're going to keep playing? I said, I can't. I got to go get the lesson. <laughs> and um, so knowing that if it's only one pin on a slope, I could live with. And I would say then leaving on your PB round would be the most annoying thing. Great stuff. Okay, so we are, in this, in this case, yeah, 
leaving after nine holes. Fine, is the most annoying. And then the final one. Um, is it that, leaving at nine when you play really well, or is it the ball slightly offline when you hit it off the tee, but it bounces on a cart path and pings miles out of bounds? So not an awful shot, but it just yeah. hits the cart path. Out it goes. There's rub of the green is going to happen on the golf course. It, every round is going to have something like that. So I, I always expect that to happen. So that way, you know, it's kind of my pessimistic scientific perspective. It's like, as an engineer, I need to know that what is going to go wrong and be prepared for that. So that doesn't bother me much because I know somewhere along the way, I'm going to do something that is correct, but sprinkler head, cart path, ball is lopsided, which is true. A lot of golf balls are not perfectly round um, or balanced properly. So I'm still mad at having to leave after my nine hole personal best, even though Lewis yeah, is probably right that I would go out and shoot six over and end up shooting par. <laughs> Uh, but but I will say though that I've had times where I've gone, um, yeah. The best round I, ha I haven't on a tour course. My best round has been sixty. So and that was four under on the front, uh, and then four under. Let's see, no, this was a par. Now sixty, so that's twelve under. Was the best round I've ever had. Unfortunately, it wow. wasn't a tournament. So now, if you ask me, um, yeah, uh, but. You know, I'm getting back into it. You know, it's taken me five years to kind of get through a couple degrees. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it. This is what's really exciting now. I get to use my education back in the golf business. So I can't thank you guys for the opportunity here and, and continuing uh, this journey through, through golf from a different perspective. Amazing. So have you got another annoyance there, Tony, that you'd think is more annoying or something that you can think of that would be... Uh, useful as well to for us to use in the next episode. Um, so, have you got another thing that's annoying in golf that tick playing with noisy people okay. would be is is annoying. I'm, you know, or having to look for a golf ball. That those two people, that individual, whether that individual makes a lot of noise or I'm having to, look, I don't watch even unless I'm given a playing lesson. I don't watch other people swing because I don't, don't, because my teaching brain will turn on. So if I'm playing, I don't watch anything. And I really don't, I'm not a fun guy to play with because I don't talk a lot. So, okay, yep. so that's my annoyance on the golf courses. If, if, how do people that, you know, cannot tune out other people, how, how do you do that? I would, I would like, I would like for him um, if it's a him or her, uh, the psychologist to, to answer that. I think that's something that can help people. I know from a cognitive engineering perspective, what I recommend people, but I would like to, to hear what the psychologist would say is how to deal with the annoyance of other people. Great stuff. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Tony. It's been really great to have you on. We've uh, obviously topped out on our longest episode so far by quite a way. So that's great. Um, got some good stuff to talk about and really enjoyed it and i think we've actually got some really useful things again for pga pros to just get them to question about i guess think think about what they're using think about what the potential for the future is that they can use um and kind of 
more ensuring accuracy and reliability within their analysis. So thanks for the talk today. Really appreciate it. No, thank you guys. Lewis, Daniel, really appreciate your time. Uh, you guys do a great job with this and I can't wait to uh, watch and listen to your other podcasts. Great stuff. And where can people find you on social media, Tony? Uh, Instagram, uh, at Tony Luchak, um, right there is how it's spelled, or Twitter. Uh, we are building out humo.golf. So H-U-M-O.golf is something that we'll be building out here shortly. Um, and that will then bring in all the research and everything we're doing. Um, and I should have that up, site up and running yesterday but it's not ready yet so uh but that's it and then youtube youtube i still i still are producing some videos i, I i'm way behind but like i said you know trying to keep up with the phd program uh dissertation and writing all that up i kind of shut it down for five years but i'm now back up on youtube as you know check just search my name and you'll find me on youtube so i appreciate you guys Great stuff. Okay, so in the next episode of the Golf Science Podcast, we'll be speaking to Dr. Jeff Lavelle, sports psychology consultant who has extensive experience in providing elite sports psychology services, supporting Great Britain, the Australian Paralympic and Olympic team successes. Um, so from a golfing perspective, we'll be speaking to him about a paper on momentum in match play formats. So that's all for episode five of the Golf Science Podcast. If you want to learn more about the science of golf, visit my website at sciencecaddy.com where you'll find golf science articles, videos, and online webinars. If you're an American PGA professional, don't forget to check out my website to understand how you can earn PGA credits for listening to this podcast. So until next time, I've been your host, Daniel Thompson, your caddy for all things golf science.